This is an ABC podcast. Hello from NARM. This is Life Matters. I'm Beverly Wang. And when did you first learn about religion? Was it a conversation at home from a religious leader in a church, mosque, temple, or synagogue? Or maybe it was at school. We're talking about religious instruction in government schools today. And I think after that, we are all due for a little fun. So we're asking the question. What is fun? Let's talk. If you didn't go through the public school system in Australia, you may not know that in Queensland and New South Wales, it's mandatory for principals at public schools to put aside up to an hour of class time a week for volunteers from religious institutions to deliver religious instruction classes. Whether this should happen has been an issue of much debate since public schools were first established in the 1870s. Last month, this video recording of a Queensland church that provides in-school religious instruction made it into the media. Here's some of what that sounded like. Religious instruction, it's been in Australia for over 100 years, but it has been a mission opportunity. This was a time when we share about the cross and about how Jesus rose from the dead, the Easter story, but it's not a story, it actually happened. Yeah, it did. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's an investment of an hour and a half wow. a week. Wow. And with that, you can have a potential to harvest hundreds for the Lord wow. and disciple them and afterwards. And disciple them as well. Now, a spokesperson has sought to distance the church from that video. I'd love to know what you think. What experience have you had with religious instruction or special religious education in your public school? Do you think it has a place in public schools? Tell us why. You can use the ABC Listen app to send a text. Alison Cortis is a spokesperson for Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools and has a teenager in the Queensland public school system. Alison, welcome to Life Matters. Thanks for having me, Bev. Alison, let's talk a little bit more about the story behind that video. Tell us about how the events unfolded since it was published in the Courier-Mail. Mm, sure. Um, do you mind if I just first make it clear that we're a secular parent group that believes in the separation of church and state? So we have supporters of uh, many faiths and none. So religious instruction is not a debate about religion. It's just a time and place issue. That, And we support parents who wish to raise their children in their family faith, but we don't think that should be in state school time. We think that should be in family time. Okay, great. Thanks for clearing that up. Uh, now, uh, about that video and some of the, mm. the events that have unfolded since it was released. So we found that uh, church service of uh, City Point online, and it's a. We've just listened to it. It's a church member telling the congregation how amazing um, that RI is. It's like having a church in the school system. She says, and she's right. She's spot on with what she says, as that is exactly what RI is. Um, but th- this video is just one example. We have found many uh, videos and uh, newsletter publications that use similar language of schools being mission fields for reaping and harvesting kids. And these are in mainstream, mainstream Christian denominations What are your concerns, well. Alison, with that kind of language? Well, our concern, look, 
I'm happy that it's now being revealed as what their intention is when it comes to what they are trying to achieve in state schools by providing religious instruction. I mean, religious instruction, um, they're allowed to proselytise, they're allowed to evangelise, they're allowed to invite children to, to consider uh, following the religion on offer. That's the nature of religious instruction. Um, but parents um, should be quite horrified um, that that is how their children are seen because schools don't tell them that and the Department of Education won't let children, won't let schools explain that, hey, you know, your kids are seen as mission fields ripe for harvesting. So um, we're glad that it's now out in the open um, but we do know that it has horrified lots of parents and just members of that the public generally. That is one religious organisation. Are, are we meant to to understand that all religious groups in schools are behaving in, in the same way, Alison? Do other faith-based groups uh, also regard schools as, as a kind of a, a mission site? Or what can you talk to say about, you know, other Christian groups or other other religions altogether? Well, I mean, Christianity provides nearly all of the religious instruction in, in around Queensland. About nine, more than ninety-five percent of RI is Christian. So there's there's not many schools that have any other non-Christian RI, but it, it does exist, and they can come into it. Um, this, as I just said, we've just we have other videos. Um, from mainstream churches using the same or similar language. So we believe that it is a common view held by um, Christian providers providing RI in schools that they see them as mission fields. Okay, we, so we let's, think that that's how they feel. Let's he if you could explain a little bit more about how religious instruction works in Queensland. Uh, how is it mandated? What is the time spent? How does it actually work in a, fit into a school day? Sure. So um, when Queensland schools first started, there was to be no RI, and that was actually at the request of the churches who had been previously educating kids. They wanted a safe, secular space where there'd be no religion and then families would do religion in family time. That changed in 1910, and religious instruction was put into the Act. Now, it provides that religious uh, organisations have up to an hour per week to go into state schools to provide faith instruction in their faith. The content of, of that program is determined by the religious um, organisations and um, principals, if approached by a faith group wanting to, to provide RI, must let them in. So they can't say they can't say no. Now, Queensland and New South Wales uh, have almost identical um, legislation, and not surprisingly, where principals can't say no, there is a lot of RI in schools in those two states. Yes, I imagine other if you states can't say have very no, little. Does that mean many religious groups are vying to get into? single schools yes yes so religious instruction in queensland is in around 700 uh schools mainly primary they they prefer primary school because the children are are younger and more inclined um to be indoctrinated mm. than than older children but there is there is um ri in all types of schools in in queensland the department of education has told us it's in primary schools high schools even special schools have ri and how is the 
program or these individual programs from religious groups, how are they vetted? Who delivers a curriculum? What are, is there any kind of standardization of, of, the, of the pedagogy there? So the Department of Education has uh, does not endorse or approve any of the content of these programs because it's not their program. They have nothing to do with it. Um, that the um, the only thing that the Department of Education is has control over is to actually accommodate how religious instruction um, comes into schools and and the and the processes that schools have to go through. So um, they um, the, the content is totally up to the re, to the religious instructor providing it um, by law. Alison, your school principal tried to say no to religious instruction. What happened? So yeah, so that was um, that was back in 2016, and um, we had asked the Department of um, Education if um, if school if if they could if uh, RI could proselytise um, to children. And um, they had told us um, absolutely not. No schools are are not allowed to. Sorry. RI providers are not allowed to proselytise. So I showed this letter to our principal and asked him to review the Connect program, which was being used um, at the school to see if it proselytised. So he he determined that it did in fact proselytise and that its purpose and that's what its purpose was, as it was inviting kids to follow Jesus. Um, so the principal suspended the use of that program, and the Christian RI providers were extremely upset. Uh, they got a legal opinion from a barrister which stated that there's no prohibition on proselytising in RI and that the RI provider solely determines the content, which is all true. Um, and if parents have given consent for their child to do RI, whether they're Christian or not, then those children can be invited to consider what it means to be Christian. He also made it clear that Christian RI could not be limited to Christians only. Okay. So the department accepted that legal advice and ultimately told the principal to um, allow Connect to be used again. Thank you for that context, Alison. We're going to expand this conversation now to welcome a few more voices and also a note that you can text in your view of religious education in government schools as well on 0418-226-576 or the ABC Listen app. Already seeing lots of texts here. Some people say it's not compulsory. The, the, the issue is that it's a, it's a patchwork in Australia. Different states and territories have different rules. So what you're hearing about Queensland may not apply if you're in Victoria or another state. Um, I want to welcome to Mur- I welcome Murray Norman, who's the CEO of Better, Balances, Be- Better Balanced Futures. It's the peak body representing all the faiths, providing what's called special religious education in New South Wales. And I also want to welcome Jack Galvin Waite, a former New South Wales high school teacher who's now an organiser for the New South Wales Teachers Federation. He's a member of the Education Department's Consultative Committee for Special Religious Education. He's also the author of a new report, Teaching Not Preaching, Making Our Public Schools Secular. Welcome to you both. Now, Murray, I want to take us back to that snippet of audio that we played from that video. Is what we heard in that audio an appropriate way to view the purpose of religious education in schools as a mission site, as an opportunity for proselytizing and discipling? Definitely uh, in religious education, you need to understand the different states are different 
but uh, religious education and religious uh, instruction is about educating children. So okay, so is that a no going, then, that that was not appropriate in that video? So, so what, what in the video, we're talking about proselytising as... Uh, you know, forcefully converting from one faith to another, or seeing that as a as a as a place where we can go and um, uh, convert people without parents' consent. Do you know what I mean? That's not happening, to my understanding, in New South Wales or Queensland, because parents are signing in, and they are signing in to have their children, students educated in the faith that they choose to sign in on. So they are signing in, and they would be expecting that uh, they're educated in that faith. Now, how that's communicated in the curriculums, that does vary uh, vastly between states. Would you be concerned if it came to light that uh, religious education in New South Wales was taking place kind of along the lines of what we heard in that video? So in New South Wales, I have definitely stood down teachers that wanted to come in and uh, were not having parental consent uh, with uh, students that had come in. So we're very... Uh, strict that we need parental consent and we need to inform parents. So in New South Wales, uh, curriculum scope and sequences need to be available to parents and that's on uh, websites. And when you sign in, in the new digital enrolment form and in paper, you have to give your consent. So we're very keen on parents having a full understanding of what their children are coming and learning. And we um, then are expecting that uh, the faith groups in those uh, classes um, are... Uh, educating uh, as per the curriculums they've got, the training that they've had, and each of them have to sign off every year okay. under the Minister for Education that they're doing that. Uh, Jack, I'd love to hear you, the same question to you. What is is what we heard in that audio an appropriate way to view the purpose of religious education in schools, in public in public schools, state funded schools? Uh, good morning, Beverly, and good morning, listeners. Um, un- unfor- of course not, and un- unfortunately, in New South Wales, there there's similar issues of proselytising. A quick Google search shows numerous media article outlining inappropriate RI content and content in, in New South Wales. And, and our members continue to report instances of students being told to pray their gay away, that women are subservient to men and that, that Islam is a sin. Now, our teachers do their best to keep our public schools a secular haven. And the profession is united that religious instruction, known as Scripture or SRE, is simply a flawed, outdated model that no longer has any place in our school system. We, ne- we need more teachers. We, de- we don't need more teachers. I've got a text coming in that says parents have to register children for scripture if they want them to do it at school. There's also ethics and non-scripture. So I uh, don't know what state they're, they're texting in from, but I suppose pointing out that there is a variety of, of lessons that you can partake in under that banner. Do you, do you find that to be the case in, re- in where the rubber hits the road, Jack? Uh, look, there's there's issues with um, with ethics as well. Our, our policy position for ethics is exactly the same as SRE. Any education, whether it's religious or not, should be done in line with an approved curriculum and by a qualified teacher. Um, general religious education or worldviews is the appropriate place for both religion and ethics. The debate we're having is not about getting religion out of schools, as Alison said. It's about removing segregated religious instruction and giving the time back to the professionals, the teachers. Murray, in the Education Acts of many states, including New South Wales, it's stated that schools are secular in nature. So it raises the question of why religious instruction in public schools exists, particularly when there are alternatives such as private religious schools in abundance. So that's a very good question. When uh, 
the legislations were formed uh, at the beginning of the uh, 1900s, uh, the churches gave their schools, in most cases, uh, back to the to the state. And the uh, where it talked about secularisation, uh, you need to remember we were a British colony, and so the British religion was Anglican. And basically, the discussion back with Burke in the 1800s is that you shouldn't force to be Anglican. So when it talks about being secular, it was the government can't tell you what to believe. So that's been. Uh, what's been enshrined in the legislation and it allows for all faiths to be taught and even non-faith and in uh, New South Wales we have a non-faith option in primary ethics so it's that the state uh, through the teachers can't teach um, a a particular faith or or non-faith that everyone has the opportunity to be able to believe what families can believe what they want and uh, special religious education and RI provides an opportunity in school time that those uh, students, young people, can be cared for in that particular faith or in New South Wales. If the majority of religious education instruction is actually coming from Christian faith groups, is that diversity actually taking place as envisioned? Well, I think we need to line up with the census. So in New South Wales, you've got nearly 50% of the population being Christian and you've got about 10% being of other faiths. So you would expect just on pure population numbers, demographics, that it's going to line up heavily Christian, um, and primary ethics, you know, is in a faith group, so that runs across uh, different different schools. Um, they have over 400 uh, teachers teaching across the state, so you would expect that there's a higher percentage of Christians, but basically special religious education uh, reflects the community that you've got. So I can take you to schools where it's about 80% Muslim religious education um, in Sydney or, or Hindu or Jewish. It just depends on the area you're in and the demographics of that area. Well, Murray, you raise a census. According to the latest census data, the top religious affiliation in Australia is actually no religion at 38.9%. Given this statistic, is religious education in, in publicly funded schools in step with where Australia is at today? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very good question. What we uh, find is uh, at enrolment time, uh, where that's offered to parents, you're getting about 70% of parents sign up. So when they sign up, they're not saying, I'm an adherent and go to church every week or temple or mosque or, or synagogue. What they're saying is, I would like my uh, child educated in uh, that particular faith or, or, or non-faith. So in New South Wales, you've got a non-faith option. Um, those people may have a faith or not have a faith. You know, those people who are going to Christian, Jewish, Buddhist, Hindu um, don't necessarily have to be an adherent. It's about education uh, in that faith. Parents are giving consent and they're learning. And we would talk about question, explore, discover. Young people get to ask big questions of faith, life and values. They explore through holy text, traditions, history, and then they get opportunities to do with that what they might want. And uh, even in the ethics classes, uh, uh, educating young people and they get to make life decisions based on what they're learning there. Jack, last year you published a report called Teaching Not Preaching, Making Our Public Schools Secular. What did you find? Yeah, look, just just before I get there, I've just got to, uh, what Murray says, totally disingenuous then. The bottom line is we don't know in New South Wales how many parents are actually consenting because the department refuses to release the participation or compliance data despite this being a recommendation of numerous reviews and parliamentary inquiries. Why won't they release the data? Because the department and the providers, and Murray knows this, they know how bad the enrolments are. The Sydney Morning Herald reported recently that 
as at high and high schools enrolments are around below five percent yet this five percent is holding up the learning of the 95 percent of students as you said Bev, the census and survey data continues to show that australia we're becoming more and more secular and australian wants our public schools to be secular they don't want religious instruction which is the exact opposite of what's required for 21st century learning in my report, it's described by academics as a dangerous black hole in the school week. But it's not just dangerous, it's also a massive waste of valuable learning time. What? Equivalent loss of the full term for a primary school graduate. Even if only one student is participating, SRE can stop a whole class, open a whole year group. It's got to go, at the very least, not interfere with curriculum time, which is what occurs in, in Victoria. Got a texter here, Jack, uh, that I'd like to get your response on. It says, religious education in schools should be about the many religions of the world to help students learn about the many religions that exist and not just push them down the path of Christianity. If the curriculum was changed, how would you, do you see a place so, where the curriculum could be changed where you would see like an education benefit, a net benefit? So, totally agree with the, uh, with the listener. Um, it doesn't need to be changed. It's actually already in the curriculum. And I think it's really important for our listeners to understand that difference between general religious education and religious instruction. So general religious education, which is also known as worldviews, is education about the world's major religions. It's taught by qualified teachers, employed by the Department of Education in a safe, respectful and inclusive setting. As educators and academics, we're supportive of this. And what we're not supportive of and what simply must change is the RI. And in New South Wales, as you said, up to one hour a week, all learning is stopped. Children as young as four are segregated on religious grounds. It's their first form of segregation. They're not even segregated on um, males and boys and girls anymore. Alison, many, what about your... It's, I appreciate what you're saying. I just want to bring Alison back in for a second. Alison, what are your thoughts on, uh, do you see a, a way for religious instruction to be modified, for the curriculum to be changed where you think that it's appropriate, has a space in a, in a secular public school? Look, as Jack um, beautifully described, there is a massive difference between uh, religious instruction and general religious education. And uh, one's appropriate in state schools and one is, is not. So there's no massaging religious instruction to try and morph it into something uh, like the general religious education that exists in New South Wales. Now, we're, I'm a bit jealous because in Queensland, it's actually very difficult in state schools uh, to get uh, the equivalent of general religious uh, education. It's not compulsory and it's rarely um, available in schools. It certainly wasn't available at my child's school when she was choosing her senior subjects for this year. Um, they're very different. Murray, we're hearing a lot of different uh, nuances teased out in this conversation about religious education, the, the shape and the form that uh, it should take. What do you think about these ideas of making it more of a global curriculum? And what do you see as the core purpose of religious instruction in public schools? Well, I think uh, definitely we need general religious education and students need to be learning uh, about the other faith and the non-faith. Best practice worldwide uh, would be having faith education across all the faiths um, and even non-faith. I've just spent uh, seven weeks travelling around the world on a Churchill Fellowship uh, looking at that. But best practice would also have students learning about their faith as well and being grounded in that faith. Because if you're 
signing into a Jewish class, it's inappropriate to be learning about Islam, Christianity, because you're actually learning about how to live out as a Jewish child, student, and your parents have signed Is it that. inappropriate that a- to learn about the existence and practices of that religion if it's being presented as, as, as general knowledge? Well, with general education, that definitely uh, needs to happen and that should happen, but you can't teach. Each of the faiths um, believe fundamental truths and those truths are believed by those faiths and they would believe those absolutely. So Christianity believes different things to Islam, to Hindu. So if you're learning how to practice those in a religious instruction or a religious, uh, special religious education, you will be learning how to would, practice. Would you see the reverse as being education. true if, if Jewish and Muslim students were being taught about the ways of Christianity? Definitely they should be and that should be in a general class and they should be learning about that. But in those classes, they shouldn't be learning uh, how to practice. Okay, so, so teachers in school shouldn't be teaching um, how to practice those faiths, but they should be teaching about those faiths. I'm like, hearing. I just want to make sure I understand what you said. So, Christian students should not be taught about uh, the Muslim and Jewish faith because that's inappropriate to learn about how to practice. But Jewish and Muslim students, it is appropriate for them to learn about Christianity. Am I understanding you? I just no, want to make sure sorry, I'm what, understanding what, you correctly. What I'm saying, in a special religious education or RI class where parents are signing into a faith group or non-faith group in primary ethics, they should only learn about that course content. So that is specifically learning about the faith that they've been signed into. In a general class, they should learn about all faiths equally and also non-faith. Okay. All right. Thank you for clarifying that. Jack, we've been focusing on New South Wales and Queensland, but you have looked at models in different states like Victoria. What's happening there? Yeah, I'll, I'll just talk about Victoria. So I, I think the problem with what with what Murray's saying, and these are arguments just on, based on self-interest um, with church numbers the, declining, goes completely against what the profession parents and the academics are saying. But even if there were some benefits, there's no reason why these programs should be running during school time. These types of activities can be conducted within religious communities themselves or in school but outside um, school hours. And that leads me to Victoria where there was a really important precedent created. Um, In 2015, the the incoming Labor government introduced a ministerial direction formally removing special religious instruction from class time. So now... It can only take place at lunch or before and after school. And this means that students and schools are not compromising curriculum time and learning outcomes or adding to the admin burden on, on principals and, and teachers. Hmm. And if it can happen in Victoria, it can happen in New South Wales and, and Queensland. I just want to go back to one of the comments that Murray made about acknowledging that religious instruction teaches fundamental truths. I just wanted to get a quick response from from Alison and Jack on that point that Murray made. Alison, why don't you start? Look, I have no problem with families wanting their children to, to uh, be instructed in the family faith. The issue is just should that be in a state school classroom where learning stops for all children, whether they're um, opted in by their parents or not. Um, as as Jack said, you know, this is special privileging um, of 
of um, religion and the propagation of religion in state schools. So that just should not be in a state school system. It's the it's the elephant in the state school classroom. It goes against the inclusive values by siloing kids along religious lines. Mm-hmm. It's the complete opposite of getting kids to understand each other when they're from different faith backgrounds and none. Yeah, as Alison said, it's the exact opposite of what's required. Most countries that developed countries are actually moving away or haven't moved away from religious instruction. And the reason is academics and international research continue to point out that the segregated religious instruction is potentially promoting extremism and sectarian conflict in our multicultural society. So our students need to be learning about all worldviews and tolerance, not just one. It's a really dangerous approach. And even the United Nations Higher Commission for Refugees uh, Lichen countries that still have a segregated partial exemption process, such as New South Wales, to a ghetto approach. Um, that's that's really alarming. We are running out of time on this very huge conversation. I just want to come back to Alison because we did start by talking about Queensland. Alison, ever since the media attention around that church video was published, um, the Queensland Education Minister has not signalled any intention of changing religious instruction in Queensland schools. How optimistic can you be that the approach will change in the state schools where you are? Look, I'm 100% convinced that that it will change um, because it's just a political decision. Um, when that video came out, you know, there was a massive reaction to it. It was covered by many news organisations around the state. There are online polls and, you know, social media blew up. Um, and so there is definitely pressure on the government. But what was really fantastic to see was that there were some Queensland Labor government MPs posting on their social media saying how shocked they were by that video and that RI shouldn't be in state schools. Now, we've spoken to many Labor MPs over the years and most of them expressed their personal concerns about RI. Um, So this is fantastic to see that we're actually now seeing them speak up publicly. So I think all of that, there must be a lot of pressure um, internally on um, education minister and the government to actually finally do something and and remove our eye from our state schools. In the final 30 seconds that we have for this conversation, Murray Norman, I'd like to get your response. What do you think the future of religious instruction is in uh, state-funded schools? I think 83% of the world is religious, uh, about 60% of uh, Australia's religious. We need in-faith education, teaching young people about their faith, and we do need them to learn about all the different faiths of the world and non-faith through general religious education. So thank you very much for the opportunity to be able to engage in this in the public debate this morning. Thank you very much for all of you and your time and all of your texts as well. I will try to get to them later. It is really blowing up. Murray Norman is a CEO of Better Balance Futures, the peak body representing all the faiths, providing what's called special religious education in New South Wales. Jack Galvin-Waite is a former New South Wales public teacher and the New South Wales Teachers Federation's representative on the Education Department's Consultative Committee for Special Religious Education, and Alison Cortis is a spokesperson for Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools and has a teenager in the Queensland public school system. And if you would like to hear more about religious education, join guest presenter Brianne Fallon on God Forbid, where they look at religious upbringing and why some choose to leave their childhood faith behind. Up next in 500 Words, a story about a piece of jewelry that took on a very special significance. 
Hey, where do you get your best big ideas? In the shower? Walking the dog? Maybe making dinner? I do all of these listening to RN's Big Ideas. Deep thinking, sensational minds. Big Ideas is your front row seat to the best live forums and festivals across Australia and the world. And I'm your new host in 2023, Natasha Mitchell, with you Monday to Thursday, 8pm on ABC RN or on the ABC Listen app. Feed your mind one big idea at a time. In this story about a precious object, kindness and relationships are key. Carmel O'Sullivan describes pieces of jewellery that she now wears in a completely different way. Here's Carmel. My special, precious possession came to me in 1973. My fiancé Dale and I went together to purchase an engagement ring. We were to be married in a few months. It was a special thrill, but daunting to spend so much of his funds in one hit. I was drawn to this ring as soon as the jeweller brought it out of the tray. The one that became mine had a central diamond, it was less than a carat, surrounded by eight tiny diamond chips set in the end of eight protruding petals. I was thrilled and excited to wear this beautiful creation. I wore it with pride and happily showed it to anyone who took an interest. So, after a few weeks, we had been invited to an event held at a farm some way out in the country. We had fun and danced, and were sitting around drinking, talking and eating, perched on some fairly sturdy hay bales, that served as seating for the occasion. But the horror hit me next morning, not because of any hangover, but because when I looked at my left hand, that lovely diamond ring was missing. That was one pit of the stomach moment when I recalled the possibility of this thing coming loose and dropping to the floor of the farm building where we had spent the evening. Dale called the farmer and asked if we could return to look for the ring. And of course that fellow agreed right away. So we drove back to the property, sad and ready for the disappointment of never seeing that ring again. And yet, holding a little hope. It was with total gratitude and delight that when we arrived for the search, that lovely farmer had already swept up the floor of the barn, sifted the small bits out and burned the remainder to miraculously find the ring within the ash that was left. What a joy. If I remember, all we could offer in thanks was a tat's ticket. Now, bringing the story forward in time to the early 90s, Dale and I have parted ways and that ring, along with the gold wedding band, was tucked in a drawer somewhere. By this time I was hanging out with my future second husband, so I called Dale and offered to go halves with him when I hooked the diamond ring and the gold wedding band. His reply was that I should keep the money for myself because that had been a gift to me from him. Well. After that, I decided to have the golden diamonds remodelled rather than to sell them. 
The diamond chips were set at a ring that I no longer wear because it doesn't fit over my arthritic joints. And by the way, only seven of the eight chips were considered worthy to set in that ring. But what happened to the solitaire diamond, you might ask? This became the new object that I renamed my divorce pendant and has become my most precious possession. I gave the jeweller my own design for resetting and I admit it was based on a rather lovely tie pin that I had seen at that time. The simplicity and beauty of that design had impressed me, so I borrowed aspects of it. The diamond is now bezel set in a vertical bar of gold, a little off centre and quite low down on the bar. I wear it every day held in place on a fine gauge choker. My new husband, well not so new, 25 years we've been married, has no objection. This most precious of my possessions is only still with me because of the kindness and generosity of my first husband and the diligent search skills of one brilliant farmer. Bless them both. What a beautiful story from Carmel O'Sullivan uh, with her story about a divorce pendant. Thanks to Carrie Dell for sound engineering on that piece. If you have a tale of your own to tell about an object that's precious to you, please tell us about it in 500 words or less. Record it into your phone and email it to lifematters at abc.net.au. Next, we're going to have some fun. So if I asked you the question, what is fun, what would you say? I'm thinking about what I would say, and I'll say that meeting up with friends and singing our guts out in a private karaoke room is fun. Maybe playing a tabletop game with family is fun. Just having a banter with friends and laughing until my face hurts. That is very fun to me. But what we consider fun is subjective, incredibly varied. Tell me what fun means to you. Now, one thing I can imagine we all agree on about fun is that it would be nice to have more of it. And my next guest has gotten the art of fun, of having fun, to an exact science. Yes, we're going to work out the kind of dissonance there. We will talk about that. He's even worked out how to have type one fun, type two fun, hard fun, and soft fun. And he's worked it out how to plan for fun in a way that is completely spontaneous. I'm totally intrigued. Dr. Mike Rucker is a behavioral scientist and organizational psychologist and author of a book called The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. Mike, welcome to Life Matters. Thank you so much for having me. So let's talk about fun. I think children are really good at knowing the meaning of fun, but how do you define fun? Yeah, so I take a psychological approach. There's this kind of geeky word we have in psychology called valence, but it's really easy to understand. It essentially means are the activities you're engaging in pleasurable and are you drawn to them? Or negative valence, which means just they kind of repel you and you're you know, they're agonizing. Yes. So that runs a spectrum. And, you know, fun is a really big tent. You, you paid homage to that at the beginning, right? You know, we have preferences based on arousal. Like for me, I love 
rock concerts and my wife tends to like low arousal fun things like reading a good book you know poolside so we all have those preferences and then you know some of us have an extroverted slant and want to be around a lot of people and some have an introverted slant so you know we have again fun is this very big tent but we can all agree that you know we're enjoying the things that we're engaged in what's happening in our brains when we're having fun so there's a whole host of different things. Um, you know, there's this nice sort of neurochemistry of both dopamine and oxytocin, and those two together are really good playmates. I think, you know, one of the problems here in the modern world is sometimes we trick ourselves into thinking we're having fun, especially what we call passive leisure, like mindlessly scrolling social media uh, and things of that nature that, you know, are really just displacing discomfort or boredom. They're not necessarily things that light us up or, you know, lead to betterment. And so you have this nice, you know, neurochemical uh, cocktail. If fun activities, you know, sort of physical activities involved, it can release endorphins that make us feel good. And then if it's something that you are skilled in, we can actually get in a flow state, which is this delicate dance between being really good at something, but then also finally finding that activity challenging. And there's a lot of research that's been shown that when we get into that state, so we sort of relinquish the brain from having to make sense of everything because we have an intimate relationship with that and in intimate understanding. Um, it can really, you know, be a fulfilling sort of way of spending our time. So there's a whole host of different benefits from having fun. Funny question. Does everyone like having fun, Mike? So I have found folks that don't necessarily value fun as an ideal. I certainly think that there is emerging science to suggest that folks that are kind of quote unquote fun starved don't understand that that leads to fairly negative physiological and psychological outcomes. But certainly there are folks that have a preference to, you know, completely um, finding value in productivity rather than sort of enjoying themselves. But the same way that we looked at sleep in the 90s, if you remember kind of how hustle culture was so prevalent then, and people would wear sleep deprivation as a badge of honor, you know, they would find more productivity by uh, essentially, um, you know, sacrificing sleep. And we quickly realized, you know, now we have decades of research to suggest how asinine that assertion is, right, to circumvent sleep for productivity, um, because essentially productivity will fall off a cliff, right? If you, you know, get in too big of a sleep deficit, you just can't be the best version of yourself. We're now seeing that same phenomena with leisure and fun. So folks that aren't at least taking a little bit off the table for themselves for enjoyment, and that can be within the realm of work, but for most people, it's a true transition ritual between work and their leisure time. For folks that are not finding any fun in their lives, there's generally a pretty direct line to future burnout, which has both physiological and psychological uh, negative outcomes. Do you think we're at a stage actually where we're almost becoming a bit competitive with how fun we can be to <laughs> just with the rise of social media and, and posting about how fun our lives are? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting concept and certainly one that I unpack a little bit. I think if you look at fun as an act of mindfulness, so it's really an action orientation, and you're really just trying to enjoy where your feet are, it becomes sustainable. 
And certainly when you juxtapose it to happiness, which is really an exercise and evaluation where you're always kind of looking in the rear view mirror, you know, for how you should feel, then you succumb to some of the pitfalls of happiness, which is the fact that, you know, happiness is somewhat derived on how we compare ourselves to the social structures we're in, you know, on the social norms that we kind of have been brought up on. And then we also adapt to things if we're not, if we don't mindfully set the goalposts, right? There's a concept in psychology called the hedonic flexibility, or excuse me, the hedonic treadmill. And what we know is that, you know, even if we get a windfall or something, you know, quite extraordinary happens, we'll get used to that and we'll kind of search out for something new. But if you're always kind of looking, you know, ahead and you're enjoying the things that you're doing, that's very sustainable. And that's where I see the difference. Okay, Dr. Mike, we have to get a bit wonky about fun because All right, you have a, let's do it. Let's get into it, baby. <laughs> Measurement of fun, the fun scale, type one fun, type two fun, type three fun. What is this all about? What does it mean? Yeah, so these aren't my ideas. I actually think quantifying um, happiness or fun is where things start to get problematic because if you think about happiness in a psychological context, right, we call it subjective well-being. And once you boil it down to a scale of zero to 10, right, what happens when you're kind of at a nine for for a long period of time and you get knocked off that pedestal and don't have the emotional flexibility to deal with the slings and arrows that are going to come naturally, right? And so, I, I steer away from that. So one, two, three isn't necessarily quantifying fun per se, but it's an ode to the fact that some of the things that we do in life that are really challenging, especially type two fun, the way it was categorized by uh, Dr. Newberry, who's a professor at the University of Alaska. He was a geologist. So him and his friends were always doing sort of outdoor adventures. And so if you're climbing a big peak, right, and you're in the midst of this you know, really rigorous activity, you know, sweat dripping off your brow and your muscles are, you know, clinching up because, you know, it's just a very challenging um, climb. You're not necessarily going to say in that moment that it's fun, but when you look back at it for years to come, obviously it's this very joyous memory, mm. especially if it was associated with pro-social behavior. So this idea of type one, type two, and type three fun really is an ode to the fact um, and then I, I use the term hard fun, which is yes. essentially type two fun, um, because that's a different professor, Dr. Seymour uh, Papper out of MIT, who just looked at it from a different slant. But these are just words to indicate that sometimes in the moment, if someone wants to ask us, hey, is this fun? You'd be like anything but. But then, you know, if it leads to mastering a new skill or some sort of challenge or something that you endured with friends, you know, like a marathon that, you know, maybe the last you know, mile 20 to 26, you wouldn't really think back of it like I was enjoying myself, but all the memories afterwards, the celebration, you know, after the finish line, the fact that you can savor in this, you know, monumentous achievement, all of these things produce an immense amount of fun, even though it wasn't fun in the okay, moment. Okay, so I should not stress myself wondering in the moment whether I'm having hard fun, soft fun, type one, two, or three fun should I I should just let myself have some fun um, there's a fun text coming in on the text line someone says fun is a long brisk walk with my poochie uh, my, I love what, it. yeah that, that's it's it <laughs> seems very mundane but to be able to find fun in that task I think we can all relate Mike you know having fun studying fun 
seems like a funny thing to make a career out of it. I am having a lot of fun saying the word fun right now with you. <laughs> How did you get here? Hopefully someone's playing a drinking game. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get here so, to the study of fun? Yeah, so I have studied happiness for quite some time. I mean, long story short, I'm a charter member of the International Positive Psychology Association. And for folks that might not know what that is, positive psychology is essentially just a facet of psychology that really got popular at the beginning of the millennium to look at psychology as a way for betterment, you know, for folks that really just wanted to use these tools to get happier. Because up until that point, psychology had really been a clinical mechanism to treat, you know, clinical deficits and poor mental hygiene. And so for about 20 years, we were really looking at happiness as this ideal but there's been an emerging sort of uh, validated by empirical research that conditioning people to be overly concerned with their happiness so that they're ruminating on what, you know, that comparison trap that we talked about earlier hmm. can become really problematic um, to the point that when you ruminate on sort of why am I, why is happiness over here and I'm here? One, you're expending all this energy that you could be using to have fun. But also, as these scripts develop in your mind, ultimately, they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we know subconsciously what will happen is you'll start to identify as an unhappy person, even though you have the, you know, as long as you're not, you don't have a biological predisposition to, you know, something like clinical depression, you generally do have the agency and autonomy to shift your focus back to a bias towards fun. But if you get stuck in that rumination where you're like, you know, living in this good vibes only culture and um, don't have the emotional flexibility to kind of deal with things as they come, but know that you can, you know, get back to fun when it's appropriate. These can become really problematic so much so they can lead to things like depression and anxiety. And so that's where I got fascinated with it. This construct of why are we thinking about it so much when it could really be a more proactive approach to just focusing on the things that we really do enjoy. Let's not force the fun. Let's have fun That's while right. we're getting there. Fun, it's the journey, et cetera, et cetera. I've got to stop myself now. I'm going to have to cancel myself <laughs> from the fun puns. Um, your book is called The Fun Habit, How the Disciplined Pursuit of Joy and Wonder Can Change Your Life. I think there's an ine inevitable question here, Mike, about thinking of fun as a disciplined pursuit. Some might see that and think, are you taking the fun out of fun? <laughs> so much so that they drop discipline. So... <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was the original title. And then when it went to market, they because um, you're exactly right. But there's this concept in behavioral science that when we're premeditated and pre-commit to doing the things that we enjoy, they actually get done. And what's happened, especially, you know, in cultures that live through a meritocracy, we've just always moved the goalposts. Right. And we don't actualize the fact that we do need time for renewal. And so being disciplined about structuring your schedule so that you know when your workday ends and you're preserving time for the folks that you love, for the activities that you really enjoy so they actually get done, does become an important component of living a joyful life. As terrible as that sounds, but in the modern world where some of us are you know, still succumb to the Protestant work ethic, where the folks that you know are in this new knowledge work environment 
extent where we never really know when the day is done because we don't have quotas anymore, like, you know, the days of algorithmic work. And then the advent of things like smartphones and email, where we can always be on if we want. And these things allure us back, right? That Gmail Bing, you know, at 730 at night, oh, I, you know, I want to turn, turn off your That's notifications, got to turn off your notifications. Mike, if someone listening to this is thinking, I actually have a deficit of fun, I'm a bit worried that I'm not having enough fun now that I've listened to this interview, how would you introduce some baby steps to reclaiming the fun in your life? Yeah, so it is pretty easy. And it's just taking a look. There's only 168 hours in your week. And we habituate what we do a lot more than we think. So just looking back, I have a simple model called the play model. It's easy to find online. Just Google Rucker play model. And you can look at how you're spending those 168 hours within the context of are you having fun or are you not? And then looking for opportunities where you're not really enjoying the things that you're doing and you can take them out of your schedule. And then just being premeditated about what are some things that you want to try. Some people already have top of mind, like, I, you know, I always wanted to get back to dancing, right? Or I would like to engage with my loved ones more, like my grandkids down the street, I don't get to see them enough. Or I have some really fun friends and I just haven't reached out to them, you know, post pandemic. So it's reintegrating these things back into your life, but first finding what has kind of filled the void. And for a lot of us, you know, when we look at the health meters on our phone, you know, we're like, ah, uh, you know, I just don't have the time. And then all of a sudden you realize, wait a second, I spend four hours a week on Instagram, mm. you know? And so, yes, you, again, it, it, it sounds so simple, but it really just takes that exercise of one or two hours of being mindful of how you're spending your time and then being proactive again, that word deliberate, right? About being a little bit premeditated of making sure you schedule those things in so that they happen. Cause so often as busy adults, we're like, oh, I would love to do that, right? Absolutely. But like, uh, yep. Dr. Mike, we have to leave it there, but I have to say it has been very fun speaking to you. Dr. Mike Rucker is a behavioral scientist and organizational psychologist and author of The Fun Habit. Well, I've certainly had fun on Life Matters today, even when we were talking about tricky topics like religious education in schools. A few texts on fun. Robert from Canberra says, nothing is more fun for me than enjoying great food and wine with friends. It's interesting that it seems to be a universal and cross-culture form of pleasure. And then to some of your many, many texts on religion in schools, Karen says, religious instruction is about choice, reflecting our multi-faiths and multicultural state. It promotes inclusivity. Chris in Tasmania says, by all means, teach comparative religions, including atheism, agnosticism, but not singular religious proselytizing. The exceptions are faith-based schools where that's accepted. Another texter says, separation of church and state is so fundamental that this should be a moot point. And so many different views. Another person says, first they come for Catholicism, then they come for Christianity, then they come for all religions. Finally, they promote the new religion of atheism and establish a godless and lawless society society. And we'll leave it here with a text from a teacher in the New, in New South Wales State Schools. The opt-in system means the rest of year seven have free time. This can be five students in RI and the rest of the year, 125 students need to be supervised by the teacher. Not a good use of time. Remember, Life Matters is always available for free and on your schedule on the ABC Listen app. Check it out there. Thanks for your company. I'm Beverly Wang and I will catch you next time.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.